Welcome to Burning Platforms, a new podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, where we decode the power and politics of big tech. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. Joining me today is our regular panellist, Lizzie O'Shea, the Chair of Digital Rights Watch, and special guests, David Swan, technology writer with The Australian, and Anna Johnson from Salinger Privacy, who'll be leading us into a deep dive into the review of privacy law in Australia. But first, our wrap of a big fortnight in big tech news, where all roads lead to Menlo Park. But let's start off looking at, in a way, the only question and the only story in tech this week, which was the whistleblower from Facebook giving evidence in the US Senate. We've covered the substantive, I think, issues in last week's um, burning platforms, the Facebook files, which were originally published in association with the Wall Street Journal. Then there was a um, outing of the whistleblower who ended up being a product manager. And I'm not quite sure how senior that is. David might be able to help me with that in a minute to understand where Frances Hugan fitted into Facebook. She did a 60 Minutes interview last weekend and then she fronted the Senate where all sides of the Senate... um, we're ready to hear from her and really fire up against what I've described as the tobacco moment for big tech. I thought the other interesting part of her testimony was it was the first time in a really um, focused way I'd heard legislators engage with the ideas of algorithmic transparency, which is really where her analysis went, that unless Facebook comes clean, with the the design of um, its algorithms, we're really taking it on its word. And as her evidence has shown, that is probably not a great place for either the US Senate or, Senate or humanity in general to be at the moment. So, David, welcome. Um, tell us a little bit about what you know about this whistleblower and how senior she was and what you think the import of her um, her evidence has been over the last week. Yeah, and, and thanks very much for having me, obviously. And um, she was quite senior in that she was at Facebook's um, civic integrity team. Um, and that's the unit that Facebook shut down. Um, so that unit no longer exists. And I think that's one of the reasons that she's come forward. Obviously, whistleblowers, generally speaking, have some sort of axe to grind or a reason that they're, they're coming forward. Um, my characterization is that she was quite senior in the company in terms of um, meeting regularly with uh, senior leadership. And she's not some sort of junior on the ground as it were. Um, she, and she showed how familiar she was with Facebook's inner workings, you know, testimony. She was extremely credible and the documents that she ended up leaking to the wall street journal were um, substantive. And it was thousands of documents um, from, from company research She's very credible and and Facebook still hasn't released that research. Um, They've tried to smear her. Mark Zuckerberg released a a 1,300-word statement, not apologising and not saying sorry, but basically smearing her as a witness and saying, you know, she had no direct reports under her, um, that that she was, um, you know, wrong in what what she was saying, um, which was disgraceful, I thought, as a response from Facebook. But I think you're right. It was the first time that someone's fronted um, the US Congress like this from the company, putting their name to what they're saying. Um, and 
yeah, not anonymously, just, you know, fronting it and, and being truthful and, and, and was found afterwards by both sides of politics in the US to be an incredibly um, credible witness. It's interesting, isn't it, that idea of um, a unity ticket on big tech. Uh, often I find that you get the sense that the right and the left are cracking down on it for totally different reasons, mm. but it seemed a lot more unified this time. Yeah, that's right. And I think we've seen that in Australia too. It's a really interesting dynamic where you wouldn't expect our centre-right government to have a natural instinct to crack down on big tech. It would have its natural instinct you know, from what we've seen with other industries, the way they've handled is hands off, um, you know, we're going to let capitalism kind of run its course. But we're seeing the Morrison government say, you know, we need to take action here and they have with the news media bargaining code and, and with other things. So we're seeing that play out in governments in the US as well, where very much a unity ticket where you're right, it's for different reasons, but both sides very much recognise actions needed. And I think they they're wisened up to this in a way they haven't been before. I think the questions to the whistleblower were very well informed and smart. And um, in the past, I've been almost embarrassed watching some of that testimony where you'd hear the questions and you'd think these politicians don't even really How understand. How do you turn on an iPad? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't understand what Facebook is. They don't really get at all the issues and they do now. And that's really heartening. Um, and it's not just in US, Australia, it's also Europe and, and elsewhere. So that's heartening where it feels like a real global moment for, for big tech. Lizzie, what's been your reflections watching the, the testimony and the sort of, is this a house of cards moment or is this just another issue that can be managed with a well-managed um, algorithm on the Facebook news feed to filter out all the negative Facebook news? Yeah, well, I would like this to be a turning point, and I think there's every chance it could be. I think it will take a bit more work. Like we've known about the dangers of tobacco, you know, you've used this analogy, and or asbestos, for example, and asbestos is still mined and used in building materials today. So there's still work to be done, even though we know the product is dangerous, to deal with companies who profit from that danger and from that harm. So I would hope it's the starting uh, point of this conversation, but that, you know, this is the time to lean into the activist work that uh, organisations have been doing across the spectrum of civil society and, you know, in partnership with communities to, to change the environment in which these companies operate. I think it is interesting that it, it unites both right and left, but I would say that I do think there'll be a divergence quite significantly on implementation and what you do about this. Um, in part, that's because I think that the Right, the conservative politicians love kicking tech companies because they make themselves an easy target uh, and they aren't really interested in being coherent or um, perhaps rights respecting is how I describe it. They're much more interested in using that as political capital for their own um, for the furtherance of their own agenda and their own, um, you know, personal ambitions. And I do think we have to think really carefully about how we might tackle harm on these platforms now we know it exists. And one of the things that's come out from these papers or this discussion that I think is interesting is that there are key design decisions that can that have been made by the company that could be changed that would have a significant impact on harm. So rather than thinking about tackling it from a um, content perspective like what kind of content do we want to ban because I think that's what the right tends to do and that has real impl implications for um, you know freedom of expression for holding power to account for all these kinds of things that social media can be effective for so instead of using that content definition in fact looking back at the design decisions that give rise to harm is I think a much more uh, useful path and might be where the right and left sit on this because you know one of the things that comes out of a testimony is 
the share button is hugely harmful. And, you know, it's as simple as that in, in, in some ways. And I, I think we could start to talk about how we could have um, put, put an imposition upon companies to think about the harm that they produce and take a, a le- least harmful path and consider design decisions they make in the context of harm rather than saying, oh, we're going to ban all content that, that might be um, relating to body image targeting at children or violent and abhorrent material, which is the other way they approach this, which mm. in fact may then uh, knock people out of these platforms who are doing important educative work or, um, or you know, human rights work. Uh, so I think that's what we should take from it, that there are key design decisions this company makes. That's where I think we need to start having the conversation about how to fix it. So just on that, before we get to the content discussion, which is obviously very live in Australia at the moment, um, what is the logic for algorithmic transparency? So if I'm driving a car, the car needs to meet engineering standards to get on the road. Is this just something that's never been considered or is it something that's crept up on us or... I know that um, there's been one decision by the ACCC where they actually demanded that an algorithm, it wasn't a Facebook algorithm, I think it was a travel website, but what is the logic of keeping your algorithm secret? I mean, I don't know if you're asking me, but others may wish to jump in. the world, yeah. I I think it's uh, profit, so it's making money. Um, You know, there's a really interesting project. (laughs) It's kind of significant. There's an interesting project I saw a few years ago in the US where uh, there was a a black box uh, computer tool, so, you know, a bit of software that that was used to analyse DNA samples and crime scenes. And it turns out, you know, DNA evidence is very compelling, but it turns out you can shed DNA in all sorts of ways, in very micro amounts that can then hang around for a really long time. And, you know, essentially these prosecution um, lawyers use this evidence from a software, um, black box software program, and then the defence had to, un, you know, kind of reverse engineer to figure out what had happened. And, you know, this person got off their their uh, prosecution, got off their criminal charge. And this is the kind of obvious example of the way in which that closed bo- um, black box algorithm can lead to injustice and that you actually do need to examine the decision-making processes, how it's been designed in order to have confidence that it's doing what it says it does. Uh, and then if we, you're going you're to make a pretty significant decision about someone's life, then maybe you're entitled to know the, the thinking, the logic basis on which that's made. I mean, it's funny that you talked about cars, actually, I should say as well, because one of the, you know, the most famous examples, possibly the most significant white-collar crime in human history was Volkswagen and another, a number of other car companies gerrymandering their their um, cars so they perform differently when put under tests uh, to release more diesel into the atmosphere. And this affected millions of people who purchased these cars and over time and huge amounts of impact on our environment. So the regulation also has to be pretty targeted and specific and look to challenge uh, companies who might try to conceal how they're doing things from regulators. And open mm. source, you know, opening up these black boxes is obviously the primary best way to do that. Uh, I think any any testing or auditing also has to be pretty carefully considered so you don't get a Volkswagen problem as well. Yeah. David, you've spent a long time covering technology on your journey. Um, how important is the secrecy of algorithms to business models? And can you see a world in which there is more scrutiny towards them? Yeah, it's sort of everything really. It's, it's how these companies have grown to be bigger than many companies' GDPs. It's literally where the growth comes from because the algorithm is the thing that gets to know you, serves you more content in terms of YouTube, for example, that might lead you down a right-wing 
rabbit hole that you never recover from in terms of Instagram. It might be that you're a young teenager and that's how you develop your body issues is from the algorithm assuming certain things about you and serving you more content that's addictive or more content that's more extreme because, you know, the the algorithm likes whatever's the loudest and it's really harmed democracy globally, I think, because we just, the reasonable voices in the room get left out by the algorithms. I think the whistleblower made an interesting point where she said, what you can do is instead change the algorithm so that it's instead just sorts the posts on your feed or the, the graph by um, date and, and order of which it's posted. I know on Twitter, you can do that, for example, where instead of letting Twitter decide the most important things to, for you to see, you just see them in the order in which they were posted. I think that's a common sense way to um, to handle it, for example, where you're not trusting the tech giant's judgment and its algorithms because they've shown they haven't been able to be trusted. I know, for example, in the past, Facebook had a human team that was um, selecting its news stories. Um, one of my friends worked for that team, actually, and was an ex-journalist, and they ended up closing that team. But I'd way rather trust the judgment of humans, for example, in deciding which news stories are highlighted at the side of my feed rather than trusting an algorithm that, you know, isn't human and doesn't have that level of judgment that we can trust at all. So, um, yeah, in terms of opening up the black box, I think that's another question. Um, And, you know, I imagine that's pretty difficult. But, um, you know, it's very interesting that the ACCC has flagged that as the live option of let's open it up. Um, Facebook and and other tech giants like Google said it's not workable, but, um, you know, it's good we're at least talking about it. Look, of course... As many things in in this, it, it seems to come play out slightly different in Australia. Um, the other development, which I'm interested in, um, you leading us through, David, this week was that um, the prime ministers called for holding platforms account for the um, the content they publish and sort of make them have be vulnerable to defamation law in much the same way as a publisher. The context of this is also um, terrific in that. Um, Barnaby Joyce has lathered up over that because there is there has been some social media commentary around one of his daughters and a senior New South Wales politician who resigned, which kind of inversely reflect the accurate social media um, whispering campaign about his own behaviour a couple of years ago. But that sort of morphed yesterday into a call for a big review on the platforms allowing um, anonymous trolls to spread disinformation. And where does that land us? Yeah, so ScoMo is, is saying that the tech giants should be um, or are in danger of being labelled as publishers in the way that publishers like News Corp right now are. And I can tell you as someone inside a newsroom right now, what we've got now is not workable. Um, we have... Um, our moderators on who work for the Australian uh, are only, say, for example, working nine to five, and then they have to shut off comments um, the hours that they're not working, and they have to go through basically every single one and make sure that there's nothing defamatory um, being posted on any of our articles on the on the tech giants platforms um, because yeah, we we would be liable as the publisher. And it's basically the tech giants abdicating their responsibility for what's on their platforms, saying that we should be liable just because where the article came from us, um, even though it's hosted on the tech giants. Um, this bounces platform. off the Dylan Volker High Court, yeah. um, and which we spoke about last week but or last fortnight, but 
Yeah, from the perspective of a newsroom, um, as Dan shared last week, it's probably terrible. From the perspective of someone that wants to cut off the flow to Facebook, it's probably not such a bad outcome. But yeah, can, what can do you I think? Ask, yeah, go can I ask you, David? Yeah. I don't really understand the thinking behind allowing comments on Facebook on news articles, other than it plays into the Facebook. Um, algorithm for promoting content because what we know from the whistleblower and from the Facebook papers is that if you get comments and if they're long comments your point score is going up and your news article with its comments below is going to be promoted I mean I assume that's why you permit comments on uh, this platform so then I find it just a bit hard to take when news organizations complain about the fact that they're going to be held to account for that when they've actually optimized their content for the platform that they're on Um, you know it is possible just to you know not publish on Facebook but also it may be possible that Facebook eventually comes up with a product where you know News Limited is able to put stories on there and not solicit comments it might not do as well, but it would mean that, you know, people don't get defamed. Uh, one of the things I keep raising in this context is Dylan Voller went through a terrible, terrible thing and people were saying awful things about him. And especially when it comes to News Corp, News Corp does, and the Australian particularly, does sometimes target individuals for campaigns of um, vitriol. And I do think it's right that there's a remedy for those people. I I do think there's problems with defamation, but I also think, you know, this constant kind of um, uh, retrofitting these programs so that we can continue to push content that's just engaging without necessarily caring about the consequences for people who might be caught up in that. uh, To me, that's unworkable and and should be fixed as well. I want to hold you totally responsible for Murdoch there, David. So hopefully you'll take that in good humour. <laughs> yeah. All I'd say is I'll appear as a in my personal capacity rather than <laughs> representing uh, the Murdoch empire. Um, all I would say too is like following the news media bargaining code, for example, we're in a unholy alliance with the tech giants now going forward and there's no going back from that. Really, I think that was a moment in time where, Obviously, Facebook blocked news from its platform and the outcome could have been totally different where then it's a permanent split. Um, Mm. All comments stay on our site, no comments on Facebook, no news stories on Facebook, and you have that real permanent divide where it's very clear where the content lies. And I think now we're at just this weird time where we're back together and we're working out who owns what and who's responsible for what. And it really does need to form part of a much broader defamation reform um we have you know some of the worst defamation laws i'm sure you guys have talked about it before but um you know globally um the defamation laws in general aren't workable with this aspect but then more broadly too in terms of um stuff we're allowed to to write um but that's another another conversation um yeah but i won't i won't go into the, the uh the news corp um articles that you mentioned yeah very very professional David thank you so Lizzie let's hand the conch to you you wanted to shift away from Facebook and just share a bit of information about an exciting new robot that Amazon (laughs) is offering us all and I don't know if anybody's been checking out what's going on with Amazon and their new robot called Astro which I think is an unforgivable thing to call a a robot because the true Astro is Astro Boy not Amazon's surveillance robot. I I think this has been very interesting to watch this unfold because there's a lot of slick marketing around Astro. Um, There's a lot of 
interesting ways in which it is being marketed as a source of safety and comfort in your home against intruders, for example, as well as doing things like being very personable, having a dance party with Astro. I don't know if anybody's watched the ad, but you can watch the ad online and it does seem like Astro solves a lot of your problems. I, having said that, don't know why anyone would want to put the eyes and ears of Jeff Bezos in their house, wandering around, checking on things, using facial recognition to work out who is where, when. Uh, And I wonder whether that will be a way in which people start to not engage with these products because they can't trust Amazon. And some of the reading about this is really interesting, actually, about how we use robots and what we perceive them to do in our lives and whether I'm, in fact, just being a bit um, idealistic in saying that um, people are going to perhaps balk at the prospect of inviting Jeff Bezos into their home when, in fact, there's a lot of reason why people buy robots and invest in them as a potential um, emblem, I suppose, of an ideal future. Uh, And there's a really interesting article on um, the uh, MIT review tech review where they talk about how uh, the way in which robots are built and their features that they're given um, play into our evolutionary history to make us like them and feel dependent on them and and people talk, you know the, the article discusses you know hugging robotic animals and that being as fulfilling as hugging a, a real animal I, I can tell you I, I can probably understand that because they're less likely to scratch you if they're a cat for example but you know people even know when they know that it's a robot they still feel a connection with it and I'm sure that in the process of designing this, Amazon has thought about this quite a bit. Uh, And so it will become a feature of our home that we sort of can't do without. It becomes a member of the family. It's like Jeff's there every night when you're having dinner with your kids. Um, And the last thing I just want to throw out there is an interesting provocation around this is um, that article talked actually about how children distinguish between um, things that are living, um, say, or that um, have, uh, you know, a consciousness by whether they're self-propelled or not, which I hadn't really thought about, um, I must say, you know, so a rock is not self-propelled nor is a tree, but a, a person and an animal is. And now we're going to be introducing robots into our homes around small children. What does that mean for their understanding of what is human and what isn't or what is um, an animal and what isn't and then if you bring into the mix marketing that might come through that robot what what does that mean as well and these are things that I don't think anybody's really thought about Uh, I I imagine Amazon has but um, I'd be very reluctant to introduce something into my home and I do wonder whether we have to be very careful about what we're kind of teaching the next next generation Um, I I did say that was the last thing but one more I think it is hilarious that apparently (laughs) it doesn't recognize stairs so if you are going to buy one against my recommendations don't put it anywhere near a staircase because even the most sophisticated one of the most sophisticated tech companies in the world can't make a robot that can avoid falling downstairs david you're um you know you're, you're the sort of go-to guy for a tech company with a new idea how do you um how do you treat the um the robot the astro um with great suspicion and i probably it's com- big coming for me. If you saw my house right now, it's just littered with tech junk that the companies send me. And I don't think I would let this into my home. Um, I let a lot of other tech things into my home, but I think Amazon often goes under the radar just in terms of its sheer sort of the amount it knows about us. I think it's got potential to be bigger than sort of Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google in terms of just sheer influence. And when it comes to issues like, privacy and um i guess i think amazon just often doesn't enter that conversation when it should i mean it has amazon web services which is you know powers a significant portion of the internet um it knows all of our shopping habits um it's become huge in australia you know it wasn't a few years ago but now it really is just in terms of um day-to-day shopping and 
the amount of data they have on us is is incredible. So letting this robot into my home where it can then see all my facial expressions and my kids, etc., my future kids, I guess, just you know, huge red flags for me. And um, especially with something at a as a sort of V one um, in early days, Amazon's shown before it needs you know, like other a lot of other companies, just many iterations to even get close to getting something right. So um, yeah, wouldn't be letting Astro anywhere near this place. It kind of seems this weird merging of security, convenience, um, and and almost um, anxiety. So I, I'm assuming people are going to be attracted to this if they're leaving their kids alone or they've got a older parent who's living alone and the phone call just doesn't cut it anymore. Um, but you've got to say there must be other ways of solving that problem than programming this all consuming um, and very complex piece of technology just to start roaming um, in your loved one's domain. Do you, do you have stairs, Peter, that you might not be able to conquer? <laughs> <laughs> it would not last five minutes where I am at the moment, but maybe, you know, um, I don't quite know how I would apply it up here. I'm just not going to though. I, I, I'm not an Alexa person either. Like I just don't like the idea of having, um, that presence, I like sort of programming my own stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I also think there's this weird drive now to automate all these functions, like looking after loved ones that you can't visit. And then what what do we do with our Why time? We spend all our time. Yeah. yeah, we spend all our time working. So what, you can work more so you don't have to go see your loved ones. Like, I mean, I think that aspect of it is a bit insidious and gross. Uh, the security stuff I think is equally troublesome. It's like we... I don't know, for people who've watched White Lotus, it reminds me of the, the really rich guy who's very worried about an invader in the in the hotel and he's just the the terrible character in the series and, and is fearful um, that people will come after his wealth, which is kind of understandable on one level, but it takes the form, you know, uh, I shouldn't give it away, but the, the point is that there's a fear culture which justifies then increasingly relying on these, not just as a source of convenience, but as a, also as a source of security about the existential crisis we face, even though we, you know, all the evidence suggests that crime is going down and the like. Uh, and we create this culture of fear and the need um, that, that then is serviced by these private companies in very invasive ways. I do think we have to start talking about breaking that dynamic. Mm. Andrew's got a really great um, comment in the chat with the question, um, isn't it regulation and not consumer choice that will limit Amazon's collection of customer data ultimately? And I guess that's the point. It feels to me, Lizzie, that um, a new product like this comes into a world that hasn't even countenanced regulation of a product like this because no one was so crazy to think about it except when they were watching the Jetsons. So it's a bit of a segue into our discussion with Anna around privacy law, but it feels to me that it just reinforces that the fact that this is going to be out on the market without, you know, there might be a ticker box consent when you get it or something, but without any real thought on what the implications of the information being collected and how it's going to be used is kind of almost uh, the sort of elephant in the room. Um, yeah, I think I think that's definitely a fair comment because, you know, if you did want something that used facial recognition technology, for example, there's no need that that would have to then go back to the um, third party like Amazon. You could have a device where it's like, facial recognition when you unlock your phone it just stays on the device but of course what we know is that amazon won't be using that they'll be uh taking this opportunity to enter into your home and gather up all the data that it can possibly get its hands on and 
it's telling, I think, that we, you know, we had a proposed law in respect of facial recognition for the regulation of the use of that technology. It was canned by our relevant parliamentary committee and there's been nothing since, although we expect it to come soon. And in that gap, we have agencies, companies using that technology in a regulatory-free environment and, you know, this is their business model to enter the space um, and then ask for forgiveness or regulation later once they've they've got a hold on the market and, and have put in place practices and also habits on the parts of consumers um, that then become very difficult to break. That is a good segue into our deep dive and I'll bring Anna into the conversation now. So Anna works at Salinger's who are like the go-to lawyers on privacy issues, um, been working in this space way before um, surveillance capitalism. Um, and uh, we got you on because we thought the privacy bill would have landed by now. And so we were going to get you to unpack it um, and also convince us why privacy isn't the dismal, boring part of the technology discussion. You know, we've been talking about robots and global captains of the world. And here we're going to talk about privacy. What Tell us a bit about why this is really important and also a little bit about what you're looking for out of this review. Yeah, so first of all, um, I'm going to challenge you on the idea that privacy is dismal. I think it's the most exciting area to work in because, you know, I get to work every day at this fantastic intersection between law, technology and ethics. So if you're talking Facebook or if you're talking astro robots in the home, um, the solutions that you're already alluding to is actually about building in what's known as privacy by design, actually anticipating what are the privacy issues going to be. And these kind of technologies should be designed to protect our privacy um, instead of the default being uh, that kind of surveillance capitalism model or the privacy invading model. Um, I don't think it's true to say that no one has thought of these issues, um, you know, since we were kids and watched the Jetsons. We've had plenty of thought into these issues and we know that we need better regulation in this space. It's not like the Astro Robots, the first kind of, um, you know, internet-connected surveillance uh, device in your home. It's by no means the first. It might be the cutest and most cuddly and the current thing on the market. Um, But so far, globally, legislators and regulators have failed to truly grapple with this. Some of the privacy regulators and consumer protection regulators have started to touch on these issues, but we need so much more work in this space. So the review of the Australian Privacy Act is absolutely timely. Um, so where, the, where we're at with that, uh, it, it, that we've had privacy laws in Australia since the late 80s regulating government, regulating the, the private sector since 2001, What's really um, spurred on the demand for a a fresh review of them and an update of our Federal Privacy Act, Um, first of all, is the behaviour of the big digital platforms, so Google and Facebook in particular, so the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry from a few years ago now, recommended a number of updates were needed to our privacy laws to address the power imbalances um, and the kind of harms that can occur to us as individuals and us as society because of the power of the big digital platforms. Um, But that's not the only driver, but that's one of the big drivers. Another is the need for Australia to um, uh, give its privacy laws a bit of a makeover to make them 
uh, equivalent or considered adequate to European standards because that will actually open up the possibility for more data flows to come from Europe to Australia. At the moment, there's a there's kind of a blockage because Australia's not recognised as having adequate privacy laws to a European standard. And there's just a lot happening in the global um, tech regulation space generally. These are all reasons why we need a bit of an update to the Australian privacy laws. So, so you've got me, it's important. What are we looking for in this review and how long since we've updated the laws? So the laws got a bit of a tinker in 2014, but that didn't really change the uh, the sort of underlying model. So one of the problems we've got with our privacy laws at the moment is it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't embed an actual right to privacy in a human rights sense. Um, another problem is that it takes, our privacy laws are built on an assumption that what we need to regulate is what's defined as personal information, which means information about people who can be identified from that information. So the assumption is that if you cannot be identified from the information, you will not suffer any privacy harm. That assumption no longer holds true. That that was true before the internet. In the digital world, that assumption does not hold true. We've seen all the revelations about Facebook, not just the most recent ones, but all of those revelations, and it's not just Facebook, um, it's the, the sort of whole digital ecosystem thrives on being able to target and manipulate us at an individual level without needing to exactly know who we are to you know to an advertiser to a platform each of us is is just a bundle of attributes that can be targeted and manipulated and sold things and uh, you know and newsfeed manipulated and all the rest um so first of all the privacy act needs to be updated in terms of what kind of data is being protected in the first place it also needs to be updated to more explicitly reflect the fact that what we are doing in terms of privacy laws, the objective of privacy laws is to protect people from privacy harms, including digital harms, not just protect our data. The whole point of protecting data is to protect the people in the data. So we need to be more explicit about saying this is actually about protecting human beings and collectively, individually and collectively as a society. That's moving much more to the effect of surveillance rather than just the idea of you've got to be able to click a box and understand what the clicker box means right yeah absolutely so I think um, we need a we need a better focus on what is what's what you know what's the end result we want to achieve what's the kind of society we want to live in and what do we want to avoid um, another thing picking on your upon your comment about the ticker box kind of or you know click the consent button this is another thing so again the ACCC from the digital platforms inquiry said we are asked too often to click on that button. I agree. And it, you know, the I agree button. The idea that we are consenting to, whether it's digital platforms or your supermarket loyalty card or your airline or your bank or whoever, the government collecting your data, it's overused. The idea that we are making us click on the button in order to download the app or buy the good or service or access services from government, it's not a true consent. So we need to actually elevate the legal standard for achieving consent. But at the same time, we actually want organisations not to have to rely on our consent. Consent should be only asked of us as individual consumers, as citizens, for things that are really unusual. So part of what the um, review of the Privacy Act it wants to focus on, and I think will focus on, 
is saying, let's actually look at routine business practices, make sure that they are fair. Like, let's apply an overarching fairness test and say, as long as it's routine and fair and expected, go for it. If it's outside, if you're stepping outside that box and you want to do something really unusual with someone's data, now you need to ask for their consent. But that consent must be freely given. It can't be that ticker box, I have to consent in order to get, you know, download the app or whatever it is. So a rethinking of consent is another big, um, I think it's going to be one of the themes to come out of the, the ACT review. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really anti-consent as the model for privacy because, you know, even if, you know, you're consenting to it, that data that you share with a large company like Facebook, for example, can be repurposed and used in, as analytics for people who haven't shared their information. I mean, Cambridge Analytica was an example of that, but, you know, Facebook says that was unlawful. But even more generally, you can create lookalike audiences so that someone who's never shared anything with the platform then is uh, susceptible to having information that looks like them used against them, you know, or used, uh, directed at them for advertising purposes. And I, I just thought, I think that's kind of dead, but I did want to um, ask you, and I guess just like zooming out a little bit, there's a huge economy in sharing data and data analytics. I don't know how it's kind of justified because it, to me, it doesn't seem to serve much purpose, the whole industry of data mining, except that it, um, it facilitates advertising. Do, I mean, do you agree or do you think we should be paying more attention to that industry-wide phenomenon of data harvesting and mining that's occurred in the last sort of 10 years, I suppose, most meaningfully, um, and, and trying to target that industry? Because I also, the other thing about it, I suppose, is most people I don't think realise quite how extensive it is and what it does. Um, but I'm not sure if that's a useful starting point to kind of think about the concept of privacy. I think it is. It, I think it's, you know, the hottest topic in terms of privacy and and the um, where we we we're seeing the most harm at the moment. But I don't think that I, I wouldn't want to see sort of a privacy act split in half. And that these are the ha- these are the rules that apply to digital platforms or to the advertising system. And these are the rules for everyone. I think it needs to be one set of rules for everyone. And at the moment, part of the problem we have is that, um, as I said, the, the well, especially the big platforms, often they can say, well, you don't need to worry about privacy because we don't know who the people are in a legal sense. Uh, so we're going to go and, and, and collect all their data and harvest it and, you know, they'll say, don't worry, we've de-identified it, so therefore no one can be harmed. But as you've said, people can be harmed whether they're in the original data set or not. Mm-hmm. That's where the power of these platforms comes from um and and the problem is that privacy laws at the moment are are constrained in how well they can rein in that kind of behavior i think the focus needs to be on changing the business model whether it's online advertising you know whether by you know selling a brand of sneakers or promoting your brand of car or whether you are pushing active misinformation about vaccines or climate change conspiracy theories, whatever it is, those platforms, their power comes from our data and, and they're abusing that power in a way that, that hurts us as individuals and as a society. And that absolutely needs to be reined in. And I think privacy law is one of the tools, not the only tools, but it's one of the regulatory tools that can be used to is, impact is- on that. 
is de-identification the weak point? Because you're talking about personal information there. And then once it's de-identified, it's no longer personal information. And there's no definition of what it is to de-identify. So that's a problem because it can be, there's potentially the risk that it could be re-identified. But is that what you're talking about then, saying that de-identified information still has to be subject to the Privacy Act? Or is there, a, is there another method that we could use? Yeah, so certainly a number of submissions to the review, including from privacy regulators, have said it's time that we we kept even de-identified information within the scope of regulation because A, people can be re-identified from it more and more easily, but B, and I think more importantly, even if it remains de-identified, the power of the technology is that we can be located and individuated you know, found and targeted and manipulated as individuals, even if a platform or an advertiser doesn't know who we are. So it might still be, you know, to the extent that you can say something is perfectly de-identified, which is itself contentious. But if you can say it's perfectly de-identified at the platform level, at the advertiser level, it doesn't matter in terms of the end harms that can still happen to us as individuals. So um, the problem is that the power of the platform's that they can they can individuate us, they can segment us, they can manipulate us. They they can through online you know behavior they can shape our experience of the world. So it's you know through the filter bubbles built by algorithms that have been fed on our own data to start with, and the end result of all the filter bubbles and their echo chambers and the dark patterns and the emotional contagion studies and the misinformation and the manipulation of news feeds is that our world actually becomes smaller. You know, our, our choices, mm. contrary to the idea of opening up the world, our world's becoming smaller. Our choices become more limited. The products we're offered are different to the, the person sitting next to us. The prices that we pay will be different to our next door neighbour. The job ads we see, the news stories we read, all of this becomes decided for us by machines built not to serve us. They're built to deliver profits to the owners of big tech. And ultimately, that narrowing of our choices impacts our autonomy and our dignity. And this is what privacy law is supposed to protect. This is what privacy, to me, ultimately means is autonomy and dignity. It's not about the protection of our data per se. That's just the proxy for what we're really supposed to be protecting, which is our individual autonomy and and dignity and our ability to control our own lives. We're not going to get that back. Our ability to run our own lives free of kind of surveillance capitalism and corporate interference until we really tackle not just one company. It's not just about breaking up Facebook. It's not just about giving users extra controls. It's about actually unpacking and better regulating the entire digital and data ecosystem. Uh, David, I know you are not the official emissary of Holt Street in any shape or form, but what what is the perspective as you perceive um, of the media in general to privacy law reform. I know that it's been seen in the past as one of the barriers of getting laws through the um, the reticence of media companies to change the current regime, which um, provides a fair bit of protection for them in their operations. Yeah, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, we have a company position that I'm aware of um, necessarily. <laughs> yeah. I think um, in general, us as as journalists are sort of um, have been pro reform, and I think we've looked at what's happened in Europe as a really successful model um, with GDPR. I think you know there are a lot of questions. I remember reporting on it at the time. There are a lot of concerns in terms of how it would actually play out 
and it, to me, it it's, looks to have played out really well and um, looks like a really great model to for us to, you know, not copy, but to learn from and, and build on. Um, I did have a question for Anna, if that's okay. Um, mm. People tell me all the time that the horse is bolted and I'm sure you get it a lot too, where it's, you know, privacy is dead and um, we just have to get used to that and, and move on. I mean, when people say that, what do you say in terms of what makes you optimistic about sort of, real action here and getting everyday people to care about it and you know the privacy is, is not dead in a in a societal form yeah i absolutely don't think privacy dead is dead um done well maybe i'm just an optimist i haven't given up but i've absolutely seen a change in about the last three years so, so i'd say starting with the cambridge analytica revelations people as in members of the public you know, when you meet someone at a barbecue, back to when we get have barbecues again, I'll be excited. But, you know, you meet someone, you're at the barbecue or at a supermarket and they ask what you do. Before 2018, people would either say, oh, isn't privacy dead? Or is that the same as piracy? Or, you know, intellectual property or something? They didn't really understand. Ever since Cambridge Analytica, people are like, oh, that is really important. You know, or they've seen the movie Social Dilemma. Um, I think people do get it. We absolutely know from surveys of like community attitude research in Australia and globally that people are becoming more and more concerned about privacy, not less. We know that social media platforms in particular have extremely low levels of trust, even as they have very high levels of engagement. And that's a paradox we have to deal with. But absolutely, privacy is not dead. And I, you know, I don't see why. I, I don't buy the line, you know, the kind of too big to fail. I mm. know when Facebook went down earlier this week and, you know, advertisers and a whole bunch of businesses that rely on, on Facebook and their related platforms would have been struggling, which demonstrates just how much power they have. But we as individuals get to vote and we get to shape our parliaments and the parliaments get to shape the legislation, which ultimately chooses, you know, the shape of the world that we live in. And And nothing one of the political challenges that so many businesses have bought into the surveillance model of marketing. So it's not just that you're up against big Facebook, you're up to every business that's chosen that that is their cheapest and most effective way of building a customer base, right? And every yeah. political movement with the laudable and notable obsession, um, exception of Digital Rights Watch, who uses Facebook to target out and build their community of little political activists. So it's kind of not just about reigning in the power of the big guys. It's also about the whole model that's been built on the back of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And th- and that's why I mean, it's, it's, you know, the calls to kind of delete Facebook or break up Facebook will not ultimately solve the problem, which is we have to, first of all, value our personal information, not let companies monetize it and suck it up without rules around them in order to build digital platforms and social networks, which are not privacy invasive. We need better models. And I'm not saying that I'm going to be the one to build it or the one to design it. Um, but, yeah, we need, we need better alternatives. And opening up companies like Facebook and others to greater scrutiny and having rules about, you know, product safety, 
ensuring that the products they're building and selling are not toxic to teens or children or anyone else or to undermining of our democracy or undermining of public health messaging. All of those things need to be tackled in order to create a digital world where we can have, you know, activists building their communities and advertisers marketing their products, but in a way that doesn't cause harm to us as individuals or to societies or democracies. We have just been talking about really like privacy, the idea of privacy as being about autonomy or self-determination, which I think is a really uh, important way to talk about privacy because it's usually framed as I just want to seal off my world from view. I want to shut my front door and no one's allowed in. Um, I want to be able to do whatever I like in my closed environment as opposed to, a you know, a right to be in public space without being watched, for example, and to be able to determine your own destiny. But I, I did want to take the opportunity to ask you Anna about um, the other component of privacy which is also security and whether this is something that you've thought much about in the context of the Privacy Act review because there are a lot of um, products now being created that if you're a vulnerable person for a variety of reasons can be very destructive to your life you know the obvious example being women who are um, playing a violent partner you know almost any product they use or you know if they had astro astro might not recognize their violent partner as an intruder for example among other things but um I did wonder whether you had thoughts about this. One, I'm a lawyer, so of course I also am a hammer and everything looks like a nail. I always think we need a a cause of action for invasion of privacy, both to deal with that autonomy question, because I think that's an invasion of privacy as autonomy, but also uh, for a security um, aspect to come to the fore that, you know, as an individual, I have a right to have products that are secure and not used against me because the designers haven't thought through the implications of what they've done. What do you think about, I guess, that that idea of a cause of action um, and, and using courts for that process, as well as more generally this idea of privacy as security? Yeah, so in terms of an individual cause of action, so say a statutory tort of privacy is something that has been thought about for years, recommended by the Australian Law Reform Commission amongst others, bipartisan parliamentary committees. They keep recommending it. It never goes anywhere politically. Um, I'm in favour of a statutory tort of privacy for serious invasions of privacy. But I also recognise that um, bringing a court action, I mean, this is is rich person's justice. So it is not, it's, it's one tool in the toolkit to address serious invasions of privacy. It's useful for wealthy people. It's useful for organisations, advocacy bodies, if they've got the money, to bring causes of action where either the legislature has failed or the regulator has failed to rein in the power of companies or the legislation has failed to cause, whether it's companies like Amazon or whoever, to design their products safely. Um, So a a statutory cause of action I think is is useful. I'm all in favour of it, but it's not panacea and it should not be the only tool in the toolkit just as um, you know proposals to increase user controls or algorithmic transparency as you were talking about earlier are all useful things but none of these things alone will solve these problems. Hey Anna just I'm happy to cede to you Lizzie 
um, and then I'll have a final question. Okay, sorry. I was just going to put in one more pitch, which is I, I get what you're saying about that being true for individuals, but I am a class actions lawyer and I do see the utility and lots of people coming yeah. together and then taking on a large company in circumstances where they couldn't do it alone. And so I sort of see the possibility of a statutory cause of action quite expansively in that way. Um, you know, I don't think it would be like defamation because I know journalists kind of don't love the idea because they sort of see it as like defamation limits, the capacity to do investigative reporting. But I just wouldn't, I wouldn't lose hope that courts, you know, well, uh, well-designed laws, you know, um, particularly in this context, but also say in relation to disclosure by company directors, which is the other big shareholder class action space, they actually have a big, they have a big impact on people's lives and they're, they're worth pursuing. But anyway, that's because mm. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to spend the rest of the time just asking you, Anna, if there was any roadmaps that you think are a, a good path to follow, like we're not the first to go down this path. Um, GDPR, there's the California laws. Is there a model that you think says this is the way or is there little bits that we should be grabbing from different parts of the world? I think there's little bits we can grab from different parts of the world. So the GDPR is often held up as the kind of global benchmark for privacy laws. It's certainly got some eye-grabbing um Oh, eye-watering kind of level penalties, which is why it gets lots of attention. It also has some great features, like as I talked about before, the it's uh, spelled out in law what we at the moment just have in case law and in regulatory guidance, which is what are the elements you need to get a valid consent if you're going to rely mm-hmm. on someone's consent as the lawful ground for you to collect or use or disclose their information in the first place. It also starts to go towards my point about expanding the definition of personal information so it it includes the notion of singling out so it's not necessarily hinging entirely on whether or not this sort of argument that Lizzie was alluding to about um, whether or not someone's actually identifiable in a legal sense in the first place but there's also other laws around the world which kind of pick up that idea and run with it. So the California Consumer Privacy Act, for example, has an even more expansive definition of personal information. So within its sort of regulatory purview, it covers information that can be used to not just identify with someone, but locate or target them or a household or a device connected with an individual or a household. Um, so that's a useful model. The Canadian law has the idea of uh, no-go zones And the Canadian Privacy Commissioner uses techniques like um, focus groups to take the pulse of the community to actually understand what is kind of fair and reasonable. And of course, community attitudes can, they can shift over time. So that it actually offers quite a useful flexibility in the privacy law. So there's, I think we can we can um, ongoing you know, focus groups that works for me. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, this, but there's that. yeah, there's bits and pieces we can pick from different jurisdictions. I think to build something really world class. Yeah, fantastic. Um, look, thanks for um, your thoughts and wisdom. Um, we're I'm now looking forward to this report lobbying and feeling <laughs> like I'm not going to be totally faking it through it. So thank you very much for your. Um, for, for being part of it today. Thanks for joining us, David. We normally finish the week just with what's coming up over the fort. And I don't know if there's anything particular apart from the privacy review that you're looking looking forward to over the next fortnight. I'm just hoping for several more um, major Facebook outages just to give me more to report. Um, that, that would be great. Um, yeah, just more big tech, bring it on. Uh, it's keeping me very distracted from this lockdown and the global pandemic, which is great. 
Excellent. So thanks for being part of it today, mate. And Lizzie, anything on the Digital Rights Watch agenda for the next couple of weeks? I mean, we've got some more events coming up. We did hold a successful event talking to writers about how they can we can make the internet work for them um, because there have been people that have been ignored, um, artists as well, by the federal government in the context of the pandemic, make use of the digital infrastructure to share their work, but it needs to work for them and not um, just for the platforms in which they share. So we've, that's part of an ongoing series. If you want to know more about our next event, which is coming up soon, then um, you can sign up to our newsletter. I'm also looking forward to more Facebook outages because I hope that you know encourages people to realize that when we put all our eggs in the Facebook basket we might be putting ourselves at risk that we won't control that environment so you know building outside of those spaces your community your organization your business is a good idea excellent well have a great weekend everyone this has been burning platforms a new podcast from the center for responsible technology we held this webinar on Friday October 8 and things may have changed since recording in fact I'll be surprised if they haven't It was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. You'll find more information about the centre and links to our research papers, as well as a weekly blog on our website. And there you can also subscribe to our newsletters and webinars. The episode was produced by Jennifer Macy. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.